Well, hello. Welcome to another episode of Undercooled. Again, I'm here with Tim, and uh, we're going to talk about what we learned at the uh, Provost Seminar on Teaching today, which was all about artificial intelligence. It was pretty impressive. Uh, so the provost was there, the uh, head of our um, IT uh, organization was there, and they were unveiling and describing uh, the UM chat TP, GPD. It look, seems like U of M is one of the very few places that has its own version that only scrapes data from our sources and <clears throat> prompts and user information is not shared with OpenAI's GPT. It stays local. So it respects privacy and uh, it's for use for faculty, staff, and students. So that's what we were listening to. So what'd you think, Tim? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, Steve, I had a really productive morning at the Provost Seminar. And another aspect that I think is so important, I want to say it right up front, of UM being able to develop its own tools that are available to the community, is that this is a huge step in terms of equity for access to these resources. You know, out in the world, there are, of course, different paid versions and different tiers of subscriptions to many different AI tools. And that's completely fine and appropriate in a business context, but in an education context, we really need to make sure that all of our students have an equal opportunity to use the same tools and to have the same access if they're going to be expected to learn about these tools in their educational context. That's right. And so there are um, three tools, only two of which I understand. The first tool is uh, UMish um, G, uh, GPT, which is available for free to all faculty, staff, and students. There's another tool called Maisie, which allows you to customize <clears throat> what data the search engine is going to um, scour. And it also allows you to set up different kinds of prompts to work with the students or the other people who were going to access it. And so uh, I think we both went to some different sessions than the same session. And so, uh, so Tim, I went to the session all about <clears throat> Maisie and how to, how to, what Maisie can do for you and how to set it up. And it was pretty interesting. So apparently uh, for Maisie, you can give it, a Canvas course or a set of documents, whatever you want. It's really set up for Canvas courses right now. And so the, um, the engine will scrape everything in your Canvas course. Uh, if you have modules with words, even linked PDFs, even links to YouTube videos or other websites, it goes and it scrubs all that information. And you are allowed to limit certain things. Like, for example, if you have exams and you don't want the students to see the exams, you could exclude that from the database that's drawing for it. But the idea is that um, it allows students to then type into a GTP prompt um, and it'll get an answer basically 
from the instructor because the instructor put all that information up there. And so that's the general idea. And uh, I actually wasn't, you know, that's nice and that's cool. But I quickly asked the question, you know, this is kind of a passive interaction. The student just asks and gets without ever thinking about the material. So while it's very nice for the students, it might not be so nice for the student actually learning the material. The session started with the uh, staff person. He's one of the senior people who's been um, making all this work. And he said that he had this interesting experience where he was in a room of students talking to them about what they need. And one of the questions he asked was, what do you care more about, learning or getting a good grade? And uh, what do you think the percentage was for learning? Oh, man, if I had to guess, I'm scared to put this out there. Maybe like 75, 25 grades over learning is my guess. That's what pretty much the rest of us thought. I was sitting next to a, my colleague, Ben, and we were going like 80, 20, you know, only 20%. But you know what the answer was? Let me have it. 100% of them only cared about the grade. The next question he asked is, how many of you have been actively using ChatGTP this term or the UM version? What do you think the answer for that was? 30%? We'll say a third. 100%. Wow. Well, I guess there's a little bias in the audience of who goes to a seminar on AI. So obviously, all the faculty in the room, they wanted learning to be the most important thing and not care about grades at all. And the students were diametrically opposed. And the other problem is that the, um, you know, even though we don't, we because we don't use it all the time, we assume students are like us. What a bad assumption. All of them are using ChatGTP this term already. So if you start wondering why the students aren't complaining about the kinds of um, exercises we're getting, you know, well, they're, they're just using ChatGTP. So it's pretty rampant. And that's not necessarily bad, but... Um, that's what's going on. So at any rate, they describe all of this. And it's really nice that late at night, a student can ask a question to the virtual instructor and get an answer. But I quickly, you know, I raised my hand and I said, well, that's a pretty passive activity. The students aren't going to learn much. Is there a way instead to have chat GPT or the UMish version, instead of giving them the answer, guide them to the answer by asking them questions. And I was really surprised. It turns out there's the chat GPT prompt that the student types in, but then there's a systems prompt that the instructor has instructed the GPT model to respond to. And you can instruct the model to not give the answer directly to the student but go into a cognitive mode where it asks, it tells the student a hint and asks them a deeper question. And all of a sudden that changes everything in my mind. That's amazing. And so I had no idea that it could actually do that. So that was my first big shock of the day that it could, and it does it right now. You can even do it. So, uh, 
guess what? I'm setting up a uh, UMICH uh, Maisie account for my course next term. And I'll tell you more about that later. But how about you? What did you start to learn? Because I learned a lot more. I think we'll trade back and forth. Sure. Yeah. My first session that I went to was about prompt literacy and prompt design. So much more in teaching students the skill of how to write good instructions and good questions to an AI model in order to get useful information of the kind that they actually need. And there were some great illustrations of capabilities that I thought we're still in the future that it turns out are already here. That was, you know, one of the themes throughout the day for me is like, oh, we're already doing that. And in this particular case, um, the the presenter for the session did a great job of unpacking lots of different levels of prompts. For example, define this term, explain this term as if you were talking to a child, write an abstract about this term drawing on recent accomplishments in the literature and sort of all these levels of the same prompt that give you very, very different outputs. And I think this is something that it's now imperative for us as instructors to work with our students on this and say, look, this is a research tool that's out there. You're going to use it. <laughs> you know, the box has been opened. So let me teach you to use it effectively in order to get the kind of information that you need at the level that you need it. My, my favorite example of that from this morning session was, and I think this is very valuable in engineering where we have some technical jargon to deal with, when you can't remember the word for a thing, but you can kind of describe what the word sounds like or what it sort of means or what it reminds you of. And the prompt that we gave GPT was, what's the word for a sound that sounds like a sound? And it was actually able to tell us that's onomatopoeia. And I was like, wow, that's so great. Because this happens to our students too. They're like, uh, what's the word for when you have atoms in the crystal structure that aren't supposed to be there? And they can sort of describe the concept, but they can't remember the technical vocabulary. So I see that being very helpful. Yeah, of course. Constitutional atoms, whatever. Wow, that's cool. So the um, one of the people who was there uh, was quickly asking, can we get the AI models for math 116, 215, 216, Physics 140, Physics 240, all the basic college calculus um, and physics and chemistry courses so that students who may not remember how to do something can quickly get the answer. Now, in this case, just information retrieval is all you would care about if you required those courses as a prerequisite to yours because you want to just get them up and running. And so that just, just that alone offers the possibility of driving equity because you have students with many different backgrounds for whatever reasons, but here's a way to level the playing field and give students who don't have the background in one thing, the ability to quickly come up to speed and relearn. And that's powerful. But we have to convince the physics department and math department and chemistry department to release those to us. But I think that might be possible. And so uh, I just thought that was a really cool idea and a really good thing. Yeah, that's great. And as as we get into more advanced courses, as we're teaching juniors and seniors, it's been 
five, six, seven semesters since they took calculus. Of course, they've forgotten some things. And having these internal tools where within the institution, within our local context, what are students here expected to have learned in this class or that class? That just seems like such a, a productive model. And one of the other things that I learned today is that we're increasingly getting to a place where the uh, the general model frameworks, you can have your own version of it and do the training of it on the data that you want as you're describing with Maisie and to be able to create a localized version that's optimized to your particular use case. This has been a struggle with the OpenAI GPT is that it kind of has access to the whole internet, but it's, it's training data is so broad, it can often be very noisy and even useless. So to have this more narrowly curated set of data is not only more useful to our students, but also less, lets us, the experts, reassure ourselves a little bit. I still have value. You know, I still have a purpose here because I'm the person who knows this discipline well enough to curate the training content to give my students an optimal experience. And in that way, it's not that different from what we've always done as experts, which is not so much about knowing the stuff. That's nice, but it's us knowing the stuff well enough to guide our students through the process of acquiring that expertise themselves. Right. And I think they even showed some numbers at the session we were both at where the um, OpenAI GPT model was getting things at the 75% level, but the UM model was getting it at the 95 to 98% level, which is kind of cool. Yeah, because it's a more curated set of data for the kind of questions that we're asking. And, uh, you know, and let's face it, science and uh, engineering is going to have higher quality data, less, um, I don't, don't want to say higher quality, but at least um, less contradictory data than, say, something in political science or sociology where you have many, many more divergent views. And so what's right? You know, it well, it depends. But in science, when you solve the one-dimensional Schrodinger equation in a potential well, square well, you always get the same answer. And so it, it can do a pretty good job, which is why, you know, when our department chair, Liz, gave it her um, advanced thermodynamics test, it scored a 93% on her test, which is pretty incredible. Um the other thing that we went over in our session was that you can also use Maisie to offload <clears throat> onerous, repetitive tasks. And then the task the person chose was kind of mind-blowing to me. He chose hiring somebody. He said, you know, if you get 800 resumes, how do you go through all those? Well, why not just dump them into a chat GPT model, and then ask and query models, which candidates have these qualities and winnow it down super quickly. And I immediately raised my hand and go, excuse me, do you think that you could give us some typical prompts so that we can look at uh, graduate student applications and do holistic evaluation in a much easier way? And instantly someone said, oh, some, one of the, some medical school has already done this and it works really, really well. So we all agree that it should be done by Rackham. They should do this for us. 
I don't know if they will, but isn't that an amazing thing that we can just ingest the entire application in the computer and then ask really good prompts for what kind of students we're looking for? That's so interesting. And it raises the important question of bias on on both sides of the interaction. There's the human bias of the unconscious variables that are making us ask certain questions and maybe even ask them in certain ways. And so I think it would be very important to have different reviewers or different people on the hiring committee, uh, you know, each probing the model in their own ways to try to eliminate some of that individual bias. Um, but one issue that I think we're avoiding here, it's well known that these public AI models have many biases built into them because of the inherent bias in the training data that they're fed for all of the cultural reasons that the internet is a wasteland. But um, in this case, you're giving it a complete set of a narrow range of data. Here's a group of people. Now I just want to ask you about this group of people. And so in that way, I think this could avoid some of the issues that, again, arise in these public models that are trained on everything under the sun. Right. The guy who led our session did make one very important point about inherent bias. Um, who do you think wrote all the code for chat GTP? People who look like you and me, Tim. Not many women, not many people of uh, color. And so there's always going to be a, you know, inherent bias just because the code was written by people like us. Um, on the other hand, the way to fight that is to be aware of it and to do exactly what you just said. Make sure that the people who are asking, um, who are writing the prompts to get answers uh, are a good diverse set of people. So what else did you learn? Oh, so much. In the second session, so the one that we both went to, um, you know, getting back to this, so what will students learn if they have a chatbot that can just feed them the answers? And we have both, as with many other people, arrived at this conclusion of, well, it's not the answer that's as important as the follow-up of asking the students to work with this information further, to engage it, to have to ask engage with it or answer questions about it. Um, but I do remember in the results that were shown from the impact of this Maisie chatbot that uh, course grades were actually going up by about half a letter grade for students who used this Maisie bot as an additional source of information. And that's an extra half letter grade after controlling for a variety of other variables. So I do think that's a good indicator that there can be very meaningful learning gains attached to these tools. But just like everything else we do, the devil is in the details and the implementation will be really important. Because if we're not careful, then it will just turn into a magical answer box that suppresses our students' critical thinking and their literacy about the information they're given. So all the more important for us to really be mindful of structuring our assignments so that we are getting students to be using these tools and learning to use them, but even more so learning to be critical thinkers about the information that comes from these tools. 
Yeah, and I'm really hopeful that these uh, system prompts that the instructor can control, the person who makes the Maisie instance, it looks like uh, if there's a way to really do what they said. They didn't give any examples, really. That was a little scary. But hopefully there will be these cognitive prompts to uh, coach a student by giving them, feeding them some a little bit of information and then asking them to do the next step. That's what's really important. So um, again, I'm going to play with it over the, over the break and hopefully use it in my next course. And um, I even have something really crazy that I'm not quite ready to talk about right now. But uh, <laughs> well, next semester, I can tell you, it's what I want to do with my uh, um, team-based um, intro to materials course that I'm not quite ready to talk about. Uh, next term, I'm just going to use it. So I'm going to, I have a few, um, I have a few Canvas um, courses from the last few years I taught. I have all my, we recorded the lectures in the room. Um, I've got all my modules, all of our reading material. So I'm just going to dump all that in. And then I'm probably going to design some. Um, so we, we do a lecture on Monday, a materials lecture, an archaeology lecture on uh, Wednesday, and then a flipped classroom on Friday. So some of the homework is going to be chat GPT um, based. We're going to ask the students to use chat GTP. And this will be more controversial data. This is going to be like, you know, anthropology, archaeology, you know, sociology type stuff. So they're not going to get a clear answer. And that's good because I want the students to discuss it and talk about the merits of each of how they made a prompt and what they're going to actually get. It'll be part of the discussion. And then um, uh, they'll come up with a, you know, poster on Friday where they, you know, evaluate the different threads of the argument and talk about it in the context of the course. I think that's a very good use of, of chat GTP, but mostly I'm doing it just so I learn how to use this thing. And uh, I think the students will actually benefit from it. So that's good. I'm also trying to convince my uh, co-instructor that we maybe should only lecture for half an hour and then do some team-based activities for the second half. So I have to wean him off of lecture. But as you know, it's kind of a radical thing to eliminate lecture. I've, I've gotten him convinced we've not, we don't give any exams. Everything's, uh, you know, mastery grade based, but uh, we still do the lectures, which, you know, for an archaeology lecture, they're so interesting. I love it. I've, I've learned so much by listening to Rob lecture. I, and I hear the same lecture every year and I always learn something new every time I listen to him. So for me, the lecture is great, but of course that's a terrible assumption to make about our students. So that's what I'm going to do next term. I even used it this term, as I, I showed you. So I didn't use the U of M version. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Perry Sampson, uh, he's a meteorologist. He started the Weather Underground. Uh, he just started a company where he's not using the UM version of ChatGPT. He's actually collaborating with Microsoft and doing it on his own. And uh, he, too, can ingest a Canvas website and do something similar. Uh, so he already set that up for me, and I was able to give it to my students for the last week of the class because it only happened 
on Friday, last week, one week ago, but it's a pretty cool tool. And you type it in and the U of M version does this too. So when it so I type in something like explain the difference between glass transition temperature and melting point. Because I talk about that in my recorded lectures. And it comes back with three paragraphs describing it a little differently. And at the end of each paragraph is a little number of reference. And then it links right back to where I said it in which video, because I had like 33 videos for the whole course. So that's something regular, you know, chat GPT doesn't do. It doesn't give you where it got the information. And yet in academia, that is so important that we know. So both the UM version does that and Perry's version does that. And it's uh, pretty amazing. So there's one thing that was a little disappointing, and you probably know what I'm going to say. We found out that ChatGPT or the U of M one does not return any mathematical equation. It doesn't know LaTeX. It doesn't know Greek letters. And so you can't ask it to show you the steps of how you solve a mathematical problem or show you the steps of how you derive something. And I think that's really tragic. Uh, they claim they're working on it, and I imagine they'll get there. But um, that's kind of important for our discipline. Yeah, that's a, a very solvable problem, though. You know, I've just for my own personal use, I've had conversations with with GPT in other languages, and you know, it can speak Japanese and Polish and Spanish and whatever, and it has no trouble with other writing systems other than the Latin alphabet. So uh, it's really just a matter of the training data available to it, whether there's a large enough body of work for it to make sense of, of the structure of the characters that you're feeding it. Um, but, you know, a thought that I have, yes, um, what I used it for this term uh, that is now finishing was I used GP tool GPT as a tool for students to uh, do some of the boring but necessary coding work for them. So they've got data from the lab and it's like, okay, now make a nice plot of this in Python or something. And so I gave the students an assignment where they essentially had to ask GPT to teach them how to write Python code to accomplish this data analysis task. And then they would produce the code, drop it into a Jupyter notebook, run it, you know, get their analysis done. But that for me was sending an important signal that this is not a computer programming class, but writing code is just a thing that you have to do at some point as a practicing scientist. I'm not super jazzed about the algorithms that you use. That's not the important part. What's the important part is the scientific meaning and the, you know, the physical interpretation of the data you're producing. So get the computer to do the grunt work for you. And to be honest, for some students that really landed, I heard from, I'll say about a quarter of the class, students telling me directly, I'm so glad you gave us that assignment. I didn't know GBT could do that for me and it saved so many hours. But then there's also the half of the class who were like, okay, I did the homework. Can I do something else now? And, you know, that's just the way it is. Anyway, planning to continue building on that next semester and try to reveal a little bit more for students some of the many capabilities that this tool has because um, 
some of our students are just as new as we are and they don't really know what it can do and how it works. And it's important for us to make them aware of the resources they have available to them. That's right. I also asked them about the uh, voice models that I know that OpenAI has come out with. Um, they don't have that yet, but they said that that's something they're, they're hoping to add. So instead of typing in a prompt, you just talk to your device. And then what's really cool is the device talks back to you and they have incredibly good uh, voice simulations, way better than uh, Siri or Alexa. And so uh, the, some of the people that I've heard talk about it say what's amazing is when you start talking to your little bot in your pocket, um, it goes, you know, if it has a female voice, it goes from an it to a she in about 10 minutes because it's that good. And so, uh, again, it's the quality of the data is always the big issue. And, you know, we just turn that to our advantage with teaching because that's what we want our students to be able to do is assess whether something is correct or not. That, and that's becoming a bigger and bigger part of our everyday lives. Did you see the news that the Russians are turning, um, you know, Taylor Swift's voice into messages telling the Russians how horrible the Ukrainians are. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, it's our job to help our students learn how to uh, interpret data, just like with scientific data. This is data. And, uh, you know, is it good data? Is it bad data? Uh, they have to make those judgments and we have to give them, you know, uh, a uh, safe place to uh, try it all out and learn how to do it effectively. So anything else that you learned? Oh, uh, no, I think those were really the big points for me. I was just left with the question as always of, of wanting to, at the end of the day, be quantitative and say, so how much is this affecting learning? You know, how many students are engaging these tool, engaging with these tools and how are they doing it? And I do wish we had more high quality data about the, the ways that students are using these tools, how many of our students are finding it valuable, not finding it value? What are they actually learning versus what do they believe that they're learning and teasing into that space? You know, the distinction between one's own self-reported beliefs and uh, what other people are observing in that same person it will be very, very meaningful. So I hope we get to a point where the education and the psychology research on these topics becomes robust enough that we can really learn what's happening under the hood with people as they work with these things. That's my big, grand, open question for now on the topic, I think. What about you? Well, just to answer your question, this is so new. None of this existed, you know, even one year ago. It wasn't until March that this all came out. And so it's a very rapidly moving field. And um, I think we just are going to have to proceed without the kind of data you're talking about. But boy, is this a goldmine for education researchers to start to study it. Oh, absolutely. If I were in grad school now, this would be a dissertation topic, no question. Right. But I'm also glad I'm not. So, And on the other hand, you know, who cares? I, I still think it has value. You think it has value. So let's just go try it and do the experiments. 
Yeah, that's that's the engineering approach at the end of the day. I have incomplete information. I'm going to do the best I can. That's right. That's right. All right. So uh, with that, I think we'll say goodbye. So we'll roll it. See you next time. See you next time.